Hi, sci-fi fans. This is Saul Rubinek. You know me from Warehouse 13. You're listening to the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast. You're listening to the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast, serving the latest news in sci-fi multimedia. And now your hosts, Scott and Miles. Your table is ready. Live long and prosper. This is the captain. We have a little problem with our entry sequence, so we may experience some slight turbulence and then explode. I got a bad feeling about this. Walter, put the cow away, would you? What is this place? It's a freak show. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast. This is episode 184, and I'm one of your hosts, Scott Herzog. And good evening, I'm Miles P. McLaughlin. And uh, we are missing M tonight. That mm-hmm. is uh, what we are, and M is not feeling real great. So we miss you, M, and she'll be back on the show in the upcoming week. So uh, please don't um, don't uh, forget to be thinking of her as she's recuperating. Mm-hmm. We miss you, M. Very much so. A lot. Um, so this show is going to be a little bit of shorter of a show. We have an interview that we are doing with Douglas Lane. You may not have heard this, man, but he is an author that just released a book called Billy Moon. And uh, we'll be talking a little bit about that prior to uh, sharing the interview with you a little bit later on. We want to give you our trivia. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we have our trivia. And we have a few news items we're going to give. We'll play two promos here. And uh, and that'll take us out. No sci-fi five and five tonight. A little bit shorter of a show. My wife was in the hospital last week, and it was just—it's been absolutely chaotic here. So we're lucky we're even recording a show. So yeah. Um, so I'm just—I'm glad to be here, and I'm glad to actually be doing this and talking about something I love. And it kind of distracts me a little bit from some of the heaviness that's going on. And it's nothing bad. My wife—my my wife's still around, thankfully, but she had a five-day stint over Labor Day in the hospital, and that's coming. Home right after a five day stint in Haiti, and uh, you can keep her in your thoughts and prayers as she recuperates. So that's enough to stress anybody. It does, it Mm -hmm. does. So, we'll talk about some news as well in the middle of that, and then we'll just go on. Um, So, why don't we go ahead and move right into our trivia? So, you call yourself a geek and a nerd? Prove it. Prove your geek cred by answering challenging trivia and entering for a chance to win some awesome prizes. So, Miles, tell us about the trivia. So we had, uh, we actually, did we, ex- this wasn't one we extended, was it? No, it was just the mm-hmm. one that we gave out. And uh, so tell me about it. Well, this is, this is what we, uh, we're asking you, our listeners, to um, name where this quote came from. And so this is, this is the quote. All right, sweethearts, what are you waiting for? Breakfast in bed? Another glorious day in the Corps. A day in the Marine Corps is like a day on the farm. Every meal is a banquet, every paycheck a fortune. Every formation, a parade. I love the Corps. And uh, this is a quote from the movie uh, Aliens. And, and uh, Said by who? Um, the actor who said that... Oh, I just had this. <laughs> if you could give that, please. Oh, yeah, so let me get it. So the actor is Al Matthews playing Sergeant Alpone. Mm-hmm. And uh, the code word was SpaghettiOs. Mm-hmm. And, and the winner was? Rachel. 
Yeah, Rachel D., thank you so much. I sent you an email. Make sure you get us your address. We can send this nice prize back to you. This was actually pretty nice. There's four Star Wars audiobooks and Billy Moon by Douglas Lane, the guy that you're going to hear interview tonight. Um, as he, it's, a little, it's fantasy, a little bit of time travel going on, a little bit of alternate reality going on. Um, and uh, five books, that's pretty solid. That's a nice prize pack. That's a nice prize pack, definitely. Mm-hmm. So thanks, Rachel. We had tons of people, by the way, actually vie for this. So we're going to have to come up with awesome loot like this, I guess. Our uh, better make the, quotes. Make, make the questions <laughs> harder. Yeah, our uh, better quotes. Yeah, yeah. So so we don't need to make them harder. We just need to, I like, I like getting tons of people in on But so. But thank you for all for participating. Yeah, absolutely. Really do appreciate that. Uh, well, let's move in in, in our uh, first uh promo we're going to play. You know, we have not played a promo from the Trek Chaos, but they have begun putting out episodes again. Is that right? That is true. And the, most recently, they sort of had their uh, shore leave uh, coverage. So, so yeah. They, they, were they at shore leave? They, they, they were at shore leave. Not shore I'm sorry, shore leave. Uh, Vegas Con. Oh, Vegas Con. I was like, shore I would leave? Lo- oh, they were at shore- I would love it if, they, if, 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 if the folks from uh, Trek Chaos. Someday, come. guys, from Trek Chaos. But, uh, but, but they were at Vegas Con, and they're they're all based out in Las Vegas, so it makes sense. They're Vegas Con; they're always there, right? So, so. but anyways, you want to find out more about their experience at Vegas Con? We heard Chris and Charity the other week, mm-hmm. but uh, got to check them out. So this is this is the Trek Cast. Make sure you check out their podcast. Listen up, Topa. You know, see, it's like, hey, I still got a little Star Trek in me. I'm built on mid 21st century civilian clothing. Yeah, well, next time you see a guy that looks like Wolverine, poke me. Yeah. Oh, cocktail. Highball and cocktail. Highball cocktail. Oh, God. This is getting bad. You're listening to Trekcast, the Star Trek podcast. www.trekcast.com. Listen to Trekcast, it'll save your virtual life. <laughs> For your first course, the latest in the universe of science fiction multimedia. All right, news tonight. We are going to talk a little bit about news, and this is going to be brief because I'm on a time crunch here. I need to be done by in about 10 minutes. So, uh, And so this is the news. So Futurama signed, is signing off. Have you watched Futurama? I've never followed it regularly. I've watched an episode here and there. Yeah, so here, here's a, mm-hmm. just a short bit of the story. Futurama producers have plenty of experience writing serious finales. After all, Wednesday's episode marks the fourth time they thought they were bringing their outrageous animated sci-fi comedy to a close. Originally canceled by Fox, <coughs> surprise, no, 2003, no, the show later gained light, new life with a series of DVD movies before Comedy Central resurrected the show in 2010. Producers thought the new home would last only one season, so they prepared for another ending. Now, two years later, here they are again, signing off again. This time it's for good. Probably. <laughs> so, uh, you know, this is one of these shows that is funny. It's had political commentary. Um, I wa- There were times I've, there's been periods where I've watched episodes, but I haven't really kept up with it. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think it's worth noting that if it goes off the air, it will be an iconic animated sci-fi series that has been around for a while and... Right. The, 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 people are going to be missing it. Sure. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, Futurama, let us know. Are you going to be missing Futurama? Let us know if you are going to be there. Um, so, this is maybe some spoiler information, just for where. This is uh, information on Star Wars Episode 7. 
So this this appeared in Collider, and this is a rumor. <laughs> so probably not a spoiler, but a rumor. Benedict Cumberbatch to star in Star Wars Episode Seven. Oh no! Wait a minute here. Let me get this straight. J.J. Abrams is directing Episode Seven, right? Right, right. Uh, mm-hmm. And who starred in Episode two of, two of Star Trek? Benedict Cumberbatch. Yeah, yeah. So coincidence? No. Uh, probably not. Not really. <laughs> this is what it's saying. Uh, last week, the Star Wars Episode Seven rumor mill started churning with potential casting news. The process is underway, and people can already start throwing their hatred or support towards any actor who might be in any way connected with the upcoming sequel. In addition to mentioning Rachel Hurd Wood, Solomon Kane, and Alex Pettifer. I am number four as possible contenders for roles in the movie. The report also said major casting news could have been released as early as the same day. Obviously, it wasn't. But if that news is still close to breaking, what would qualify it as major? Perhaps as the casting involves one of the most popular actors working today, Benedict Cumberbatch. Hit the jump for why... Um, uh, so, basically, uh, according to Film Chronicles via Bleeding Cool, Cumberbatch will... Ret- will re-team with Star Trek Into Darkness director J.J. Abrams for the film, and there are no details about the role. As the film Chronicles points out from an interview with Total Film, Abrams and Cumberbox were both fans of Star Trek, but their hearts have always been with Star Wars. Cumberbox told uh, Total Film, I already asked him if I can be a lightsaber and we're in talks. All about whirring sounds and the rates for lights and, every- and everything. And laughs. I thought, yeah, I grew up with them. And then looked recently at when they were released, and now I'm like, no, I didn't grow up with them. I was born with them. They were a huge part of my background and my upbringing. I was much more connected to Star Wars as a kid in any way, in a way that lots of kids are because it's immediately storytelling. Very simple, beautifully, outrageously simple narrative in a way. A wonderful three-act melodrama opera, and I loved him. I really, really loved these films and always wanted to be Han Solo. Everything Harrison Ford did, I thought, was the coolest thing ever. Uh, uh, what do you think? I, I think this would be a good fit if, if Cumberbatch was in Star Wars. I mean, s- s- say what you want about the latest Star Trek movie. It, it has definitely polarized people as far as uh, whether they liked it or not. But I, I think Benedict Cumberbatch gave a spot-on performance in that. And I could see him as a Jedi Knight or maybe as a... Sith Lord or, or Jedi gone bad. Um, yeah, it's it's not a huge leap for me to see him in Star Wars at all. And certainly not as a villain type. I, maybe that's just kind of typecasting him. I mean, he could play, he could easily play a stoic Jedi just as well. Sure. Yeah, he, yeah, he could. But he just played such an interesting bad guy in Star Trek. That's, you kind of want to see him continue to play the bad guy, right? Yeah, I sort of do. Yeah. 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 But. Yeah, well, we'll see what happens. I mean, it's not—it's not confirmed yet whether he's going to be in the movie or not yet. Right. It's, but I—I I, I think he would be—he—he he, he would make a nice addition. Yeah, uh, yeah, I'm not—I'm not opposed to that. Mm-hmm. Not opposed to that. Any, any other news coming down the pike that you want to ch- talk about that you saw come down the line? Well, I, I guess we, we talked about it in our listener feedback show, but just acknowledge that. Um, Ben Affleck, Affleck. He, <laughs> the Affleck duck. I couldn't um, could help do that. Uh, he's going to be in the new, you know, he's going to be Batman in the new Superman, Batman versus Superman movie. So, yep. So, listeners weigh in. Um, we had actually a lot of discussion on Facebook, people hating this decision, and people kind of saying, well, Affleck's not a terrible actor. Mm-hmm. Um, and I agree with that. And I think that I am willing, despite the fact that for me, 
like Heath Ledger will always be the Joker, and in a lot of ways, Christian Bale will always be my Batman. Mm-hmm. I'm willing to wait and see. Because I think that you, depending how it plays out, how I mean, it's going to be a different direction in the Superman-Batman movie, mm-hmm. I'm kind of for it. At least seeing what happens. Uh, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to be cautiously optimistic. I mean, when I first heard it, I was, I'll be honest, I was a little disappointed. Uh, just, I mean... I, I, I think when you talk about actors, Christian Bale and, and Ben Affleck, you know, I, I just think, I mean, Bale is, 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 when I think of it, a really good actor, I definitely think more of Bale than Affleck. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's early yet. He, he could either make this, he could either rock it or it could suck. We'll just have to see. Yeah, we'll have to see, we'll have to see what happens. Mm-hmm. We'll have to see what happens. Well, let's move into our last uh, promo of tonight. So uh, we're going to do a promo for the Chronic Rift podcast. This is actually their Cyborgs podcast. They were just down at Dragon Con. I was following them, and they had uh, the uh, lady that played... Um, oh, Lindsay Wagner? Yeah, Lindsay but, Wagner. They, they were on, he was on a panel with her. So. Oh, that, uh, I'm sure. Oh, he must have been in his glory. Oh, I would have been. And mm-hmm. they actually had the voice of the computer, the guy that voiced the computer. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, also voiced a little question for the panel. Oh, that, that, that's awesome. And so it was classic. You would have really enjoyed it because I know I'm you sure. watched some of that. So. Oh, I, I enjoyed Bionic Man and, and Bionic Woman back in the day. Yeah. yeah so. Mm-hmm. so anyways, this is a promo for their podcast. If you are fans of either of those shows or just want to listen to another podcast, these are some guys to check out. John does a good job. Mm-hmm. Two longtime fans of two bionic shows discuss an episode in detail every two weeks with one guest host the six million dollar man, the bionic woman. The mythology, a look behind the scenes, those sound effects, and the fashions. Oh my god, the fashions. Cyborgs, a bionic podcast, hosted by John S. Drew and Paul K. Bisson. Find us at chronicrift.com slash cyborgs or subscribe on iTunes. With our interview tonight, we are interviewing Douglas Lane, the author of Billy Moon. And Douglas Lane has done a ton of other stuff. He is a writer, a blogger, a podcaster. He does a podcast called The Diet Soap. And he's just released his first novel on Tor Books. Tor Books, of course, notable in science fiction for the longest time. And he has appeared in, uh, he has released other books, uh, other books, but most of them have been like collections of short stories. Like his first book was Last Week's Apocalypse, a collection of short stories. Uh, published by Nightshade Books, and he had another short story collection called Fall Into Time. But he has his first full-length novella called Billy Moon, which is kind of a fantasy-slash-alternate-reality time travel book, but really deals heavy in philosophy, kind of a psychological and philosophical uh, 
thriller, hmm. I guess, of to say, or a storyline at least. Maybe not a thriller, that's bad. But I know you can get a chance to interview Miles, but he, we kind of, it was a timetable, like an early Saturday morning one time that mm-hmm. we interviewed him. But I'll just have to listen to the interview. Yeah, but um, uh, so Billy Moon, of course, is a reference to uh, um, Winnie the Pooh. Okay. And uh, Christopher uh, Robin. Mm-hmm. Ladies and gentlemen, the following author's work has been described by Locus Magazine as fascinating, moving, strikingly honest, and powerful. His stories have been published in amazing stories. His debut novel, Billy Moon, is now out from tour. We're talking with author, author Douglas Lane. Welcome, and thank you for taking time to chat with us on the Sci-Fi Diner podcast. Hey, I'm glad to do it, and thanks for having me on. It's no problem at all. You know, what's great is that we're not just talking to an author, we're talking to another podcaster, Right, yeah, well, uh, you know, you, so you run this podcast called Diet Soap. Can you tell our listeners just a little bit about it? We'll plug the podcast here at the beginning. Sure, uh, the Diet Soap podcast is a philosophy podcast. Uh, it's, an, it's an interview podcast. Um, I often will talk to uh, professors or other writers, um, uh, people, bloggers, uh, other podcasters. Um, and when I started it out, I was really influenced by a, a podcast called The Sea Realm, which is kind of a, 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 a well, how do I describe The Sea Realm? The C, the C stands for consciousness, and that focus, the focus of that podcast was on peak oil and the possibility of collapse and all these calamities. And I saw a lot of calamity um, in, in, you know, in the world and, and in the United States, right as I started Diet Soap, and I wanted to follow the same uh, trajectory, there we go, trajectory uh, as the sea realm. But I ended up focusing on philosophy instead, because as I tried to figure out why we were having an economic crisis and and how we might approach a lot of the problems in the world, I kept going to the to the root of things, and I ended up, you know, asking like questions like, "What does it mean to be?" <laughs> so I, uh, I ended up being uh, very abstract by by the end. But uh, if people have been listening, they've kind of seen or heard the journey from practical political questions, practical uh, ecological questions, into philosophy. Right. Well, in, in in my understanding, is you have a little a bit of a background in philosophy. Is that correct? Yeah, a bit. I have a BA in philosophy, so. Right. right. Awesome. You know, I, I just got done reading, um, I forget the, I'm going to forget the author of this novel, but I just got done reading uh, One Second After, mm-hmm. um, and he talks about, you know, America gets hit by an EMP pause, and, you know, what does life happen when it just totally implodes on you? And a lot of what you seem to be hinting at, at least, at least what inspired you is, you know, the dangers that we're in as a society collapse and what does this mean? Where does it take us? Why is this happening, et cetera? What does it mean to be human in the middle of all this? Um, yeah, so. exactly. And and that was – and the feeling as though I was up against a situation uh, that was terminal, <laughs> that, you know, that we had a problem as a society that really uh, was going to lead to collapse was what brought me to – start the diet soap podcast but through that podcast i'm a lot more optimistic than i and i was than i was at the beginning because <laughs> i think i actually think we have the capacity to change the way our society works 
and that a lot of the problems that we're experiencing don't have anything to do with like human nature or even the limits of, of nature and resources. I mean, we, we could manage the, the, the world much better than we do. And uh, so I'm, I'm more optimistic than I was when I started. So in a way, do you view the kind of uh, the things that uh, we as humanity are going through as kind of growth pains in some way? <laughs> Uh, you know, I think that's overly optimistic. I, I, I don't think that we – to say they're growth pains means that we have some adult version of humanity that we're going to become, you know, if we just follow some natural course. And I, I don't think that's it at all. It's like we have this responsibility to change and mature. But um, so we're not – it's not this organic process of growth. It's more like, you know, we have to make some collective decisions. We have to be right. creative, you know in our ideas. And so I, I, uh, I wouldn't call them growth pains cause that it's too passive. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, this, like, they just kind of sit back and it happens. And yeah, not you know, you usually grow when you're sleeping, right? <laughs> right. True. True. Well, let's, let's, let's move in to talk about a little bit about you as an author and your work. Uh, how did you get snared, uh, uh, snared? I want to use, I don't use that. I use that very liberally. Like how did you get caught up in science fiction itself? I might use that fantasy and stuff like that because a lot of your stuff has appeared like in amazing stories and stuff that we consider to be more science fiction based. Yeah, well, I love I love science fiction. I mean, the 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 most honest answer is I'm a nerd and I uh, am a Star Trek fan or a Trekkie. You know, so even back when I was a a kid, I um, was fascinated by the stars and I was a you know a nerd and on all that. So science fiction is in my blood from from adolescence. Um, uh, so I guess it doesn't make it in my blood, but nonetheless, <laughs> yeah. um, so that's one reason why I ended up in, in the genre. But when I started really writing seriously in my twenties, I didn't think of myself as a genre writer. I wanted to be some sort of arty type. And I, I think maybe some people would say I've ended up there. Um, the, I, tr- I decided to pursue writing science fiction and fantasy stories seriously in the mid nineties uh, because I was kind of told by a, another writer that I was already a science fiction writer, that I just didn't know it. Because I, <laughs> I, I would write about aliens and things, but I thought it was surrealism. And he said, no, you know, there's a whole genre that does this, and you should go to Clarion and figure out how to, if you want to be a professional writer, this is, this is the path you should go down. So uh, that's, I, I, I kind of became or decided to be a, a genre writer right around the time I went to Clarion West. Oh, very good, very good. And you went there to did, did you come away with an MFA or, or MFA? Yeah, no. Clarion West is a, a just a six week writers workshop. Oh, just, oh yeah. is that is that the one in Colorado by any chance? No, it was in Seattle. In Seattle, okay. Uh, Clarion is a um, uh, an I've old it, but... workshop. Yeah, and and uh, a lot of uh, a lot of short story writers have gone through Clarion. I mean, it, it's sort of an institution in the field of, of science fiction and fantasy, and it's there's like a model for how you build a little career in the in the realm of genre writing. And part of it is you go through the right workshop, then you start selling your short stories to the right magazines, and then you get the the book contract. Right. Um, so that's, that's yeah. kind of how it kind of how yeah. it works. So just uh, it, no one tells you it takes twenty years to yeah, do all. Yeah. <laughs> To, pay, to begin to make uh, headway, right? Well, right. you know, I, you, you talk, um, 
you talk a little, I wanted to get into the idea of you being a surrealist or postmodern writer in just a little bit. What, what made you want to become a writer, period? Oh, uh, uh, probably narcissism. <laughs> Some sort of character <laughs> defect, I think. Um, I wanted to be an actor. I liked getting attention, and, uh, but I wasn't very good at it. So then I thought, well, I know what I can do. I'll write the scripts or write the plays that uh, the actors, you know, I'll give them the lines they have to speak. But then I, I never ended up writing anything like that. But, uh, yeah, I was not getting a part in a school play when I was about 17. <laughs> I said, oh, I'll be, be a writer instead. And then I just committed to that. Um, so, I mean, that's not a very glamorous answer. Yeah. But <laughs> No, but I mean, obviously then, so you, you've been writing for how long then? Over 20 years about? Yeah. I, my first uh, short story was accepted when I was just eight. I was 18. I was just out of high school. Oh, very good. Yeah. Very good. So, uh, you know, critics, reviewers have classified your work as being postmodernistic and surreal. How do you interpret these terms? I guess first, that's my first question. And then I'll get to the others after that. <laughs> well... Um, I think that I really like both those terms, <laughs> so I'm I'm fine with it. Uh, I like surreal because I really like surrealist art, and um, I have a, a fondness for Andre Breton. Um, and I said Breton, it's Andre Breton, and um, I feel that surrealist art uh, still has a lot of. Um, is still relevant and and uh, a lot of potential. I think even to, to develop, even though you know a lot of the original work seems antiquated now. I think that the the spirit of surrealism is still relevant, and that and that to you know a lot of people don't know this, but the surrealists are forget this. The surrealist artists were uh, political revolutionaries. They you know a lot of them joined the Communist Party. Um, they saw their art as being something in service of, of the revolution. So the political aspect of surrealism is something I like. And I like the surrealist aspect of their politics, too. In other words, it's not this drab, uh, kind of power-hungry uh, political movement, but it truly is a movement for liberation uh, in the arts. Uh, the postmodernism I like, too, fine. Um, I'm not, I don't, actually like postmodern philosophy very much, but uh, I think that if you have any kind of philosophical bent and you're a contemporary writer, uh, unless you're writing something really overtly philosophical that's almost like a survey course, like Sophie's World, which I just encountered. Um, it's a 20-year-old book, but I just discovered it. But in, in, if unless you're doing that, I think you kind of get thrown in as a postmodernist because that's the most dominant kind of uh, philosophy that people know about today. It's kind of the most current. So if you're doing uh, philosophical work at all, you might get, and especially if you're metafictional and you're, and you're kind of playing with the, um, uh, the form a bit, uh, then you're going to be called postmodern. Okay. Uh, when you set out, when you set out to uh, write a short story or even in the most recent case, a novel, are you thinking of, I'm going to be writing a, 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 a surrealist novel, a postmodern novel. Are you just setting out? You have the idea, and you're just writing. I, well, I, I don't sit down and think I'm going to write a surrealist anything because I, my first impulse is already kind of is usually um, in that direction. 
a, a lot of the way I work is by combining ideas, combining things that are already, you know, tropes or, or even taking someone like I did in my novel from the real world and putting them into a, a fantasy context or, or taking uh, someone from the real world and putting them in, into a historical context, which you didn't quite fit into. Um, and that kind of move that combinations, uh, that collaging of, of elements is itself surrealist. So I don't have to, it's just like a, it's built into the way I operate, I think. Mm. Um, but then, yeah, I do know, I do think about a bit like, like I'm writing a novel for tour. So obviously it has to have a fantastic element in it. It can't just be, uh, mundane. Right. So, so yeah, I, I'm aware of that. Right. Tell me a little bit. You mentioned tour, and that leads to my next question. You know, it's tour has always been one of the heavy hitters when it comes to major publishers in science fiction. You know, I, I remember quite fondly. You know, going through used bookshelf looking for like tour or Dell or Del Rey, and you, know, mm-hmm. you look for these sorts of things to say. Oh, there's a science fiction book. You pick it up. You look at it. Uh, how did Billy Moon end up on tour? Um. Well. Uh, Jim Frankel asked me to send him my book because uh, he had read some of my short stories in places like Amazing Stories and Lady Churchill's Rosebud Wristlet. And um, so I did. And uh, But actually, I sent him a different book. I sent him a book called The Brainwash Brand. And he liked it but didn't think it was quite right. And he, But he bought this book. Uh, and put the other one on option. So he basically, uh, on an elevator pitch, he he bought Billy Moon. Okay. Uh, so that's how he, you know, and I, and, I, and I was writing in the field of of science fiction and fantasy. I was publishing in Strange Horizons and Lady Churchill's and Amazing Stories. So um, it was natural for me to seek genre uh, publishers for my book. Right. Right. You know, you know, the premise of the book doesn't come out as being overtly sci-fi per se. It, it's not sci-fi. Yeah. It's fan. It's a fantasy novel of a kind. Yeah, it, it doesn't have a science fiction element, it, it, uh, as far as I can tell. Uh, you know, <laughs> as far uh, as you know. So. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, uh, the, the closest thing to science in the book is maybe you know weird political theory. Right. Like if you think Althusser ever wrote anything scientific, then maybe this is a science fiction novel. But, <laughs> right, right. Uh, <laughs> right. But, but definitely uh, definitely the fantasy bent. Well, mm-hmm. we're, we're kind of dancing around. Is, uh, our listeners who may not have heard about, who may have heard about you, but maybe not about this work, maybe not about you, but tell us a little bit about Billy Moon, the premise of it. It's just released this month, right? It's coming out on August 27th, yeah. All right. Um, so the premise of Billy Moon, my first novel, is that Christopher Robin Milne, the, uh, the the real man who was the basis for the character in the Winnie the Pooh stories, uh, and whose father was A. A. Milne, um, goes to Paris in 1968 and participates in the student and worker strikes in Paris um, that year. That so he becomes embroiled in uh, May 1968. And that didn't ever really happen. Uh, it's completely made up. It's, it's a real person in a fictional situation. And um, that, that's the premise of the book. There's the elevator pitch that sold right. the book, right? 
Now, my under, my understanding is he encounters, uh, you know, something that kind of puts him at, well, that brings in the fantasy element of the book. Can you explain right. that a little bit? Yeah, the main character and the other main character, the student that invited Christopher Robin to Paris, has some sort of visionary power. He has an ability to change the present by understanding the past, which seems like not like it would be magical at all, except that literally just through understanding, but through his seeing the past, he can alter reality. Um, and that's one of the reasons why Chris Robin ends up in Paris. Is he doesn't really end up there uh, on his own free, you know, uh, under his own steam. Okay. Um, so, yeah, that's the dream. The, that's the fantastic element. It's sort of a dream element. There's a that's the surreal side. There's a kind of a collaged quality to the life of this character. Um, so, well, you know, it's. Uh you almost wish that if people really understood the past, the present would change. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's nothing fantasy about that at all. Come on. Right. right. No, I mean, I think that's true. Um, uh, except in, in this case, it's like you re-remember the past in a different way. And that means that your present is changed. Changes because of because it. You've, because you've gone back in time in a sense. And yeah, there's a little bit of time travel. A little bit of time yeah, travel. In yeah, this. it's a touch of time travel in this. I guess there's a science fiction. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's not. It's not exactly normal time travel. But you remember the past, and by re-remembering in a different way, that sets the chain of causal effects off in a slightly different direction. So when you are done remembering, you're actually in a different present. The idea that each of us kind of, you know, even in a family where you recall the same event. Mm-hmm. Um, we remember these events slightly differently. Yeah. And, and, and it's just because our mind will mishmash different things. I might see my father as having worn something different that day. Mm. Or, uh, you know, simple things like we're watching the TV when I was eight years old and the tube blew, blows out on it. You know, what's a tube anymore? But, you know, the tube mm. blows out on it. And in my mind, we're watching Peter Cottontail. And, and my brother thinks that we're watching The Sound of Music. You know, it's yeah, so right. slightly different changes and how that might even change the way we remember inadvertently changing the future. Oh, okay. I, I, yeah, I, right. So what I'm having trouble fitting together is there's two concepts. One is that each person has their own individual memory yeah. that's different from the others. And then the other is that you can, uh, because of that difference, um, you might be actually experiencing a different present. Than the other person, exactly. is that kind of yeah? Okay, yeah. yeah. So yeah, so yeah. That, I that, that's that's right. I mean, the the thing about a novel is that unlike in real life, I think um, there's only one point of view at a time. So whoever's point of view the 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 story's being told from is the one whose memories matter. Right. Um, so the present uh, changes based on whose point of view it is and then also on whether or not that character changes his point of view or her point of view. And the power that this uh, student had was to kind of influence how other characters remembered the past as well. He could share kind the changes. share that experience. And that yeah. definitely makes it different. Definitely. Yeah. Why, why Christopher Milne? Um, Christopher Robin Milne didn't like having that association with Winnie the Pooh as he was growing up. 
he was wanting to escape. He lived his life in the shadow of his father's fictional version of him. And I read his memoirs and saw this very mature, very interesting and articulate man um, struggling, and he writes about it very well, with overcoming his childhood and the fictional stories that were told about him in his childhood. And the idea of overcoming childhood and overcoming a certain kind of fiction seems to me seemed to me to be connected to the student worker strikes in May 1968 because this was a youth movement that was trying to take power. And so it needed to overcome its um, youth and it needed to break free of the fiction that was the society that it was in, the fiction that took itself to be real and, and create something new. Hmm. So that's why Christopher Robin Mill. And that's why, and, and he seemed to fit that. He said, I was thinking about other writers or even that have had sons that have kind of followed in their father's footsteps. You know, you think of Christopher Tolkien, um, um, Frank Herbert's son, you know, with the Dune series and how mm-hmm. some of them have discontinued the work or, or kind of lived off the work. But I think maybe what makes it different for, for Christopher is the fact that he was used as a character in these stories. Exactly. Yeah. He, he, he's not living in the shadow of his father's success. He's living in the shadow of his father's version of him in a story. <laughs> so, you know, he'll meet someone and he'll say, I'm Christopher Robin, and they want to hug him or something because he's this uh, great icon of youthful innocence. Right. And uh, But you're talking about a man who was a, a veteran in World War II and uh, had his own, you know, struggles in, in, in life. He... he uh, had a daughter who had, I think, spina bifida or some, something like that, and uh, and he was a he owned a bookstore in Devon, um, and he was a writer, but he wasn't a writer like his dad. He wasn't a humorist, and he wasn't a novelist. Um, he he wrote some memoirs, and he wrote them very well. He was mostly, I think, a naturalist, very interested in and in protecting the environment and and connecting to the animal and vegetable world around him right have you read most of his work or some of it i've read all uh i think there's three memoirs and i've read them all yeah it's not a lot to digest i mean he <laughs> was not this was not he was not his career to be a writer it's just something he did well though in the in the 70s mm-hmm. so and if people are interested in christopher robin and i say this at the beginning of my book um they ought to read those books because right. my book is not going to give you a very accurate impression of the man no, no and and right so it's 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 fiction Fiction, yeah, so, yeah, it's fantasy. So, <laughs> right. Um, so, so, you, so you drop him in the middle of the 1968 Paris Revolution. Um, how does this story seem to connect to us today? I mean, 1968 for many of us, like for me, that's two years prior to me being born. How does a story like this and creating this fantasy and dropping this fantasy character? that we've kind of grown to love through Winnie the Pooh into the middle of the revolution. How does that connect to us? Well, you know, that a moment, it was two years before I was born too. I think we're roughly the same age. Probably. Yeah. Um, so it is relevant today in the most immediate, you know, reproduction of it would be the Occupy Wall Street movement. You right. can see the mentality of 68 uh, to radical change in a lot of 
radical movements since then. Like I think uh, the uh, anti-globalization movement had a certain kind of ascetic and and, uh, affinity with the student worker strikes of May 1968. For anarchists, especially in the United States, I think, May 68 is a glorious moment to be cherished and remembered. I mean, in the early 90s, I considered myself to be kind of an anarchist type. And here in Portland, it was you had to pick some French thing to be, and that was what I chose. (laughs) Um, And I learned about May 1968. Around that time, I read Graham Marcus's book um, called Lipstick Traces. It was all about the Situationist International and their influence on punk rock. Um, there are a variety of ways the idea, the ideas of May 68 are still in play today, especially on, on the left and especially in maybe certain kind of art movements and, and in the academy too. So it still has a big impact on us. The, the main thing to think about is that it was a moment where a couple of students, you know, maybe a couple dozen students at, at Nanterre, the suburbs of Paris, uh, and this new American-style university that just been built a, as kind of a holding pen for the for the youth. Those kids were able to spark something in downtown Paris, uh, with and and grow a movement in the manner of in a matter of weeks that took the entire country. I mean, there were 20 million workers on strike in May, and they were seemingly going to be able to overturn the Gaulist regime. Just by flexing their muscles, just by deciding to, just by waking up and going into the streets. It, it was an amazing thing. Um, it got put down, and it got put down without a shot. And uh, it was a, basically a propaganda uh, failure. Uh, uh, in other words, it, all that had to be done was they say, oh, we hear you want to participate, you want more say, we're going to hold an election early, you will get to say and that was it. <laughs> and, and the Gaullists won. I mean, they didn't even you know, have an electoral victory, let alone a revolution. Mm. Um, but uh, the slogans and ideas of May 68 uh, still resonate because it, they, that moment just seemed to hold so much potential. And it, it really turned the world upside down for a while. Hmm. Very cool. Um, you know, you, you write about political social change in, in fantasy um, you know, maybe sci-fi sometimes. Does that does a genre allow you as a writer to express ideas in a way that they are a either more relevant or b more acceptable than maybe just outrightly just stating them? Um, I think that I I would have said in the nineties that the what a, what I was attracted to in the genre was that I would be able to. Um, kind of disguise my ideas and get past the censors and that kind of thing. I don't think that's necessary, actually. I, I think that the reason why the genre is um, attractive is that by allowing you to try to disguise the ideas, it allows you to think. Mm. I, think I think that I don't have any real solid answers for what to do with our social situation or what kind of how we can resolve the problem of capitalism. I'm still trying to work it out. So being able to fantasize and, and think in these metaphorical ways and create scenarios that aren't bound by real physics or uh, real, the real world 
is helpful to me. Mm-hmm. But I, um, I think that uh, the idea that we can write directly about our political situation and, and come to, a, you know, that we already know the answer is a big part of the problem for the left and everyone else. It's, it's not that we're being held back from something that we already have. There's no holding us back if we've already made it. Right. That, uh, so uh, we don't have it yet. <laughs> we don't know where to go yet. We, that's, that's the thing. That would be one of my major messages of, in, in this book, Billy Moon, I think. So the idea that somehow we are working toward an answer but don't have the answer is a more healthy way to look at that in some way. Yeah. It's, it's, we're working towards an answer and that there's nothing uh, really stopping us from changing the world except our own, the limits of what we can understand and, of, of, and the way we know how to live. Um, I mean, that sounds very almost new agey. I'm not saying <laughs> we can just think it and it will be true. I'm saying right. that if, if we have the right kind of ideas that we could embody, then we would we would embody them. That you really can't separate thought and action. Mm. Um, and and now I get to be at the limits of my thought. I don't. <laughs> I can't. If I could really express exactly why or what it would take to create something, I think I would already be acting to make it. Right, right. You know, it, I, as you were talking, you made me think just a little bit of uh, the TV show Battlestar Galactica. And my yeah. co-host and I talked about uh, not necessarily the story arc, but the 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 ideas, both political and education, uh, ideas with election and, and all that sort of thing. They would drop them in there, explore them, but not give you a definitive answer. Mm-hmm. And it was one of the things that I liked about the show the fact that it allowed you, the viewer, to kind of draw your own conclusions, um, mm-hmm. maybe wrestle with it yourself a little bit, and realize that sometimes there isn't a clear-cut, easy, right or wrong answer. I like stories, and I haven't watched Battlestar Galactica, I hate to say that. I'm, I, uh, I know I need to get on it. Uh, but uh, I like stories that not only don't give you the answer, but make you question the question. <laughs> um, that's what I really enjoy. Like Philip K. Dick is great at that. Oh yeah. You know, it, you're going along and you think you know what the question of the book is, but it turns out no, actually, the real question is some some other level altogether. And you know, often his books seem to be sort of broken because about halfway through, there's going to be a crack in the book, and now you know, your your all bets are off, and you have to ask completely different questions about what's happening to the characters. Yeah, so probably that makes his books just a little bit difficult uh, and acceptable for some people. For some people, but they're really well. I mean, they're really easy to read. They're oh, yeah, not absolutely. A, they're like comic books, you know, in a way. But yeah. um, I'm a huge. I'm a. I'm a huge dickhead. You should like use that. <laughs> take that as a I quote and just throw that around. Yeah, yeah. Just, just by itself. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Doug thought, admits he's a dickhead. <laughs> But I am. I, I'm a huge Phil K. Dick fan. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, we have some listeners that absolutely love Phil K. Dick, and we uh, we've reviewed some of his movies on our show before. So, or not reviewed them, but did a flashback. We call them rewinds. We rewind them on our show. Do, so. do you? Uh, are you a fan? I I, I read um, I read his uh, I read a collection of short stories by him. Ubik is that the way you pronounce it? Yeah, uh, Ubik. Yeah, yeah. So I, I I read that one. Um, I have not read "Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep" yet. Yeah. That's on my list. But yeah. and I've well, seen, what I've, did you what did you think of Ubik? Uh, you know, it's been a while. 
and uh, it's uh, it's it's not one that stuck through. It's not, it's not one that stuck with me. I remember more the collection of short stories. Um, okay. Some of them that were based, like a Minority Report, was based on one of them, and um, and how much I enjoyed the short stories better than I enjoyed the movies. I think I, I have some good news for you. I think. Go ahead. You're you're not a dickhead. Yes. Because I think Ubik is the one. If you read Ubik and then you can't stop reading Philip K. Dick, you are now yeah. a fan. And I think that that's really his not his best work, but it's the it's sort of definitive. It if does you, it does sit in my school classroom. I'm a teacher. I teach English, yeah. and it yeah. sits in my classroom. But I haven't. I I, I would say I'm I'm more of. If, if, I'm more of a, uh, a huge uh, Terry Brooks fan, so okay, so that's yeah, sort of yeah. fantasy, but yeah, yeah, that that Tolkien and some of that stuff, as far as it goes, I, you know, up to about three years ago, I wouldn't even consider myself a fantasy reader. But oh, really? Yeah. Did, did you did you read science fiction a lot? Oh yeah, did... a lot of a lot of Asimov, a lot of um, I, I was hooked, I got hooked into science fiction by reading Andre Norton. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, so Asimov's on my list. Clark, uh, you know, you know who I like a lot lately, and I and I really should read more of him is is Heinlein. Oh yes, I have some. High, I was going to mention him as one of them too. So he's great. He's a very philosophical writer. Yes, I mean, I, it's um, the the one he wrote about uh, by your bootstraps. I think is the name of the short story or pretty long uh, piece about time travel that I just can't get enough of because it, it it has all the kinds of puzzles in it that I like uh, about the genre and I like about philosophy too. Right. And like the, the problem of, the problem in my book partly and the problem maybe we're facing as a society is how do we make change? Right. Not just, not just you know, how do we make change specifically in this context with this economic system of, of capitalism change or something else, but how does change happen at all? Hmm. Because um, it seems like... Uh, you have a situation where really either something is caused by something else, in which case it's going to be set into a certain pattern and it can't be changed, or it's uncaused, in which case you can change it. Maybe something random can happen. It could be changed, but not consciously. You're not, you know, there's no freedom in that. Hmm. And Heinlein has his ways. Has the time travel story is a way like you can change history. You have to go back, and you know. And if you do, there will be some sort of, you know, you'll get ripped apart by paradox to do it. But you can, you know, you'll either have always done it or never will. Mm-hmm. It's like there's a grandfather paradox or there's a bootstrap paradox. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, anyway, I love that stuff. Yeah. So what did you say the name of that story was again? Um, I think it's by, your, by his bootstraps by or by your bootstraps. Yeah. I'll have to look that one up. I don't know if I, it's been a while since I've read some of his short stories, but I have, yeah. I can't find, I'm looking at my bookshelf and I can't actually find them. I mean, uh, well, it, it, it's others. a typical time travel story. I mean, it's, I think it might be the prototypical one where the, 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 the time traveler is uh, woken up in his sleep by an old man and shown the time portal, mm-hmm. right? Which, of course, that's him from the future. Right. Come back to, but the only way the time travel ever happened was because of what happened in the future. So there's a bootstrap moment. Okay. Right. It's something that always was. There's a great little red nose uh, special for Doctor Who. You may have seen where the TARDIS lands inside of itself. Did you ever see that one? I have not seen that one. Yeah. I've only gotten into Doctor Who since the Eccleson era. So. Okay. Well, yeah, this is, um, this is the, uh, 
Matt Smith doctor. Oh, that it does is. Well, then, yeah. I, then I have it's seen like, it. I just don't remember the episode. It's, it's a, no, it's not an episode. It's that's what it's. I think you have to find it online because like a, it was a Red Nose Day oh, special, God, like eight, eight minute film. Got it. Yeah, it's just very silly, but the the time machine lands inside of itself, and then is also uh, a couple of minutes in the the future, so that the there are duplicates of themselves coming out of the time machine and talking, and and the the only way to solve the problem is uh, you know they have to flip a switch on the console, but they don't know which one until one of them from the future comes back in time to tell them which one to flip. But of course. The only reason that they knew was because they'd come back. So there's that that bootstrap moment again. Oh, yeah. What do you think of the new doctor? I haven't, you know, I think he looks fine. I haven't seen him act in anything. Have you seen him in anything? No, it, apparently if you love British television, you would have seen him somewhere because he's yeah. done different stuff. But I just, I've never seen him. Oh, we have one of our, one of our female co-hosts on the show um, uh, said, oh, yeah, he'll be great. But, I, you know, I haven't. I always, whenever they switch doctors on me, I always have this nostalgic moment. I saw a great infographic to describe this too, but there's, <laughs> there's this whole nostalgic moment like, oh, the old doctor was much better than this current one. And then after a few episodes, it kind of grows on you. And then after a while, you're like, man, this doctor's the best doctor. You know, yeah, right. you kind of go through this cycle of, of acceptance. Yeah, I had, I had that feeling about Matt Smith for sure. Yeah. Like, I, I started out thinking that David Tennant, um, would never be replaced really and then matt smith grew on me i thought oh no this is the best doctor ever and then and now i think in fact matt smith is too good that and that he's he's almost like um like the old mickey mouse you know they had rough edges on him when they drew mickey mouse and then they perfected it and perfected it and perfected it until it turned plastic Right. And I feel like that's what happened to Matt Smith. He's like the perfect doctor, so much so that he's kind of fake. And um, I'm looking forward to a new doctor. And yeah. I think, uh, anyway, that's that my little bitching. But uh, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm I'm with you. I'm looking for. I'm looking forward to seeing it. I'm looking forward to seeing the 50th anniversary special in November too. So. Yeah. So on Sci-Fi Diner, do you do a lot of uh, reviews and th- stuff of media, or is it mostly author interviews, or is it both? It's, 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 it's you know what. It varies. We've had um, we've had people on that have done sound for uh, for, for 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 TV shows. We've had um, we've had authors on. We've had um, podcasters on. We've done celebrity interviews. Um, we just came from a, a convention where we interviewed Eddie McClintock from Warehouse Thirteen and. Uh, um, Amanda Tapping from Stargate, and so so some of it it, it, it varies. So um, we've done. Do you have com- a pretty pretty com- big audience now, or it's you know what it's a diverse audience. Um, our media reach ends up being a you know from our YouTube, our web page, Facebook, and everything. We're upwards toward about fifteen thousand a month. That's great. So you know it's you know for so I would say that most of that, not all of that, maybe half of that comes from the podcast itself. So, so how many like how many downloads of the podcast are there typically for a month? Is for, eight, about I would say about eight to ten thousand a month. That's that's awesome. So, so yeah, and uh, 
I, I think it is. You know, we're just kind of these little hole-in-the-wall podcasts that we're just— Because I've been doing mine for about four years, and it's admittedly, you know, it's more academic and everything, um, it, but it's about 1000 a week for the podcast yeah. uh, for each episode. So that, I guess that makes it um, per month about 4000 yeah. Uh But, you know, there's a whole backlog. Uh, it's not bad. I feel fine with it, and, uh, and I really enjoy the feedback. But recently— I put up a podcast, and within a day, it had like six thousand downloads, which I've never. And I'm thinking, maybe it's a bot. Yeah. <laughs> Have you ever had an experience I, like that where you had a, a kind of an artificial spike or something? Oh, we 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 had an artificial spike. This was back in March. We had an artificial spike, uh, but I, but at the same time, I'm not certain it was. I think it had to do a little bit with the actor that we had interviewed. We had interviewed um, the lady that does the. That they did the body does the body acting for the computer in Halo Four, mm-hmm. and some different sites got a hold of the interview. Halo Four was just launching, and and some of these sites got a hold of the interview, and so that just pushed the numbers up. I think a little bit artificially. These aren't regular listeners, but maybe tight. Okay, so but you didn't have like a bot downloading your podcast. No, no I don't think so. Does that ever happen? I think it has. I, I'm going to be honest. I don't go in and I'll go in and look generally to see how it's doing, but I really don't analyze statistics. You know, I'm doing this because yeah. I, I love doing it. And actually, I think in the past five months, we've added a new co-host and it's made us way better <laughs> because <laughs> she is funny and witty and it's a girl. So, and before it was just another guy and I chatting and yeah, so sounds sounds like the same two. It's like the, your voices weren't distinct, and it was the same perspective. And now you got a new perspective, right? Absolutely. Yeah. But she's yeah. great. We got to tell our <laughs> listeners here a little bit where they can find this book uh, and check out the philosophical ideas and some of the other things, the surrealist ideas that you're bringing up in Billy Moon. Uh, where can we go ahead and uh, pick up that book, or where can listeners find it? Uh, you can find it on Amazon.com. And it's at Barnes and Noble, and it's at, probably in your library. Just got a good review in the Library Journal, a starred review. So I hope all the libraries carry it. Um, and let's see, you can go to my website, douglaslane.com. Uh, if you enjoyed hearing me go off on a tangent about Doctor Who and Red Nose Day, you can find my podcast. If you like hearing me ramble, uh, it's Diet Soap is the name of the podcast. And there's a website, dietsoap.podomatic.com. Awesome. Well, we really appreciate you sitting down with the Sci-Fi Diner and chatting about Billy Moon and some other ideas that, uh, that are rambling around the head of yours. All right. Thanks. And I enjoyed it very much. And thank you for having me on. It was a pleasure having you here. so much for visiting the sci-fi diner we hope you enjoyed the food and the service and the conversations if you'd like to share your thoughts regarding what we've talked about or tell us what you're watching or reading flip open your communicators and contact us at 1-888-508-4343 or click the speak pipe link at sci-fi diner podcast.com Send an MP3 or typed email to sci-fi diner podcast at gmail.com. You can also join the conversation on our Facebook fan page at facebook.com slash sci-fi diner. We'll share your thoughts on our listener feedback show. If you'd like to support the diner beyond the conversation, you can always throw some coins in the tip jar at sci-fi diner podcast.com.